Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, y'all ready for your headliner? She's from Boston. She was in L.A. Now she's here for you in New York for her album taping. Please put a big round of applause. Start clapping up. Clap it up. Clap it up. To my girl, Sam J. Sam J is a comedian and rising star currently based in New York City. A writer on Saturday Night Live, Sam is originally from Boston and is a frank and honest performer, divulging the highs and lows of her personal life as a young, black, queer woman living her life. In July 2018, Comedy Central released her excellent, assertive, truth-telling debut stand-up record, Donna's Daughter, and that same month, Netflix featured her doing 15 excellent minutes on their show, The Comedy Lineup. Sam and I connected recently for a conversation about her life, her late mother's guiding influence, hip-hop and Jay-Z, finding her lane in comedy and at Saturday Night Live, and much, much more. With the support of listeners like you who subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly pledges at patreon.com slash Control. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Planet of Sound locations in Toronto and Ottawa, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 430th episode of Creative Control, featuring the great Sam Jay with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Let's start with my lowest point this week. I've been overpooling. <laughs> Yeah, fuck y'all, man. I hate it. I hate that there's just, with every technology, there's a new way to feel like a broke nigga. Right? With every way that shit level up, you can level down, you know what I'm saying? So I was very excited about Uber because I was off the bus. I was like, oh, I'm not on the bus with these broke niggas, no more. Fuck these broke bus riding niggas. I will never return to a bus, right? Made a strong decision. I was like, I'm a trained Uber nigga now. That's who I am. But then I got broke and I had the Uber pool. And I was like, oh. (laughs) Fuck. This is a little bus. (laughs) It is a bus where niggas are closer to you than they will be on the actual bus. How do I fix this? Because I still got an Uber pool. I started riding in the front. Because if I'm in the front and there's like weed picking niggas up. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Hi, Sam. How's it going? Well, how are you? I'm okay. I, I, I'm a little uh, wet. I just rode my bike in the, in the rain. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a little drenched, actually. But uh, how are things uh, where you are? Where in the world are you, actually? Oh, I'm in New York. How long have you been in New York now? Um, since, I don't know, September, the middle of September. Last, last year? Last year, okay. And how's that going? Mm-hmm. I mean, New York's New York. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, are, you, where are you from, Boston? I don't know. Yeah, I'm from Boston. Okay, are there? I don't know. <laughs> <City>. I know. <laughs> uh, City's a city to you? Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, 
I don't necessarily love the city, but the opportunity is cool and I'm learning a lot. Yeah. But yeah, I could do without the city of New York. Have you thought about living like outside of this, like Connecticut or like maybe upstate a little and then just coming in? That's too far to travel with it's... that uh, with that work schedule. You're right. It wouldn't work out. Right. Okay. All right. That That's fair. Now you... <laughs> I I've not for some reason I've been to many American states, but I've never ever and I've been to Massachusetts, but for some reason I've never been to Boston. From your perspective, what are I know there's a rivalry, like a, certainly a baseball rivalry for one thing between mm-hmm. Boston and New York. What what are the distinctions between the cities uh, for, for you? Uh, well, Boston's just cleaner. <laughs> less uh less overwhelming new york's just very busy all the time and it's like it's a struggle to do things here like everything is like you have to earn every inch of the city you know Mm. and it's it's just it's just overwhelming all the time it just never seems to calm down and boston's kind of it's smaller it's quainter it's cleaner is it so? Is, is it that makes it more chill but i've heard is culturally is boston more intense culturally I, i mean i'm I guess I'm skirting around the race, yeah, racism. Me. I, I mean, I've heard <laughs> Boston's a little more racist than New York. Is that right? I mean, I don't really think Boston's particularly more racist than any other place. I mean, I, I'm sure you can encounter racism anywhere. Yeah. Uh, as a black person that grew up in the city, did I encounter racism? Sure. Do I feel like that was the identity of this city? No. Okay. Did you? But, yeah. Okay. I mean, there's more institutional racism in Boston in the sense that, you know, there's always a lot of uh, white people in positions of power. Like, we've got our first like black police chief in this last election, and I think our first black like senator at some level. Like, so there's like that. You know, going to school, I was always aware of like white people had the authority positions around me, you know, mostly white principals, mostly white teachers. But I also went to Catholic school, so that probably has some play in it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess there's more institutional racism, I guess. Than New York. I mean, I'm now a full-grown adult, so I don't know what New York school system's like. Yeah, right. I don't, I don't have those experiences to speak on it, you know what I mean? But is Boston a city where people are like spitting on you in the street and calling you nigger? No. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I've heard that, that that is the case there in some case, in some places. I just wonder. But that's the case there and so everywhere. Yeah. It's just it's a race issues in New York. Just, you know what I mean? Yeah. So in that regard, I don't think it's unique. Okay. I didn't feel unsafe. I never felt unsafe like a white person was going to attack me. Right. That was never a feeling I had. There's a school of thought that if you see someone who represents your cultural background in a position of power, that that gives you hope, that that that's, makes that seem like a, an aspirational aspect of life. If you see someone doing something, like a, I just got to meet, uh, for some reason, just through circumstances, I met Kim Thale. Do you know, do you remember the band Soundgarden? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he sees me, and it's just indie rockers, right? It's just like white indie rockers and i ended up backstage at this show and mm-hmm. he sees me and he said and he's introduced i say hey kim and he says oh hey you know I, I, someone says this is vish kim and i say hey how's it going he's like good are you by chance indian that's the first thing he said to me and i said yes i am and he said huh and then we proceed he, he doesn't run to come across any indians in our kind of rock realm you know well and i told him it's it's true. Like I, I I I'll admit I was never like the hugest Soundgarden fan, but seeing him playing guitar with that band did make a bit of a difference for me as I when I was a teenager because I didn't mm-hmm. see that very much. Anyway, sorry to talk about me, but did you do you no. <laughs> do you do, do you have that? Did you have that growing up? Like when you saw people uh, that were black or or women or whoever, like did you see? Did you did that make you feel like it was more achievable in any way? Well, I mean. As I stated, where I grew up, that wasn't really the case. You know what I'm saying? So there, you didn't have a lot of black people in positions of power to look up to. Like, you know, in the city of Austin, a lot of the black people do like, you know, they work for like a lot of the service jobs. They're police. 
they're they're fire people, they're firemen, or they're they work at hospitals, they drive the bus. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like you're you're seeing a lot of black people in those positions. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, and you know, going to the doctors with my mom, and she had a doctor named Dr. Griffin, and she was a black doctor, and I remember that had a huge impression on me, and I used to really like visiting the doctor with her and like talking to Dr. Griffin and she was just a very uh impressive woman. So yeah, I I, I can say sure there has been instances of that. Okay. And now your your album is called uh, Donna's Daughter. Um and I I'm I, this leads me to ask actually first of all about you know, your childhood generally. Were you were you happy growing up in Boston? Yeah, I mean, I was a happy kid. I had a I had a pretty whole life. I wasn't rich or anything you know and we were probably poor by standards but i didn't feel poor you know i had a great mom mm-hmm. i was in a lot of activities i was pretty pretty happy child okay that that's good so is there a particular reason you want to do uh pay tribute to your your mother this way by by naming this record donna's daughter well i just wanted to do something that you know honored my mother's legacy you know and just encompassed what she taught me in the time that we had together you know my mom passed away when i was 16 so it just felt like a good way to it felt like a good debut it just felt right it felt like all of what i am now and largely is because of her and so i wouldn't really be without the things that she taught me the lessons that she gave me you know there was times in my life where i was in really dark places and super depressed and just not in good mental space. And I pulled on a lot of what she gave me to get me out of that. And so the album was just a tribute to all of that, to where I am, to who I am and where I'm going. Well, I'm very sorry to hear uh, that she passed away when you were uh, so young. That's, uh, that's, I can't even imagine that. And uh, uh, I appreciate that, uh, that this, uh, so this, like, like you say, this is a debut record. Was she a fan of comedy by chance? Uh, yeah, she was a comedy fan. Did she have people she, were there people she liked that, that you got into as well? Carlin, she's a big George Carlin fan. She liked Robin Williams a lot, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase. I would say Pryor, but I never really feel like she was hugely into Pryor. She liked a lot of the heady stuff. Okay, and, and you mentioned some SNL people there. Was she an SNL person? Yeah, she watched SNL. She was a big like sitcom person. Okay. She loved like Cheers. She loved Taxi. Shit like that. Okay. Okay. So how did you? This sounds like. I mean, my goodness, I, I my parents did not like that stuff. I had to find that stuff myself. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you talk to your friends about these things. Uh, so it was in your house. Comedy was in your house. What kind of impression did that make on you? The, the, like you were talking about aspirations earlier and. You know, you say there was a doctor that um, you you sort of you know that that gave that was impressed you, I suppose, um, mm-hmm. and impressed upon you like a future, I guess. So, did was there a moment for you that you can recall where comedy's in the house? You're watching your mom's into comedy. Like, did you gravitate towards it for any sort of like, huh? Maybe I can do this. Like, do you remember when that happened? Uh, not when I was a kid. I didn't really have any understanding of like you could be that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. I just thought, wow, these people are funny. And I knew very early that I, like, understood it in a way that other kids weren't understanding it. Like, I didn't think it was uh, accidental. I knew that people were setting up jokes. I knew that people were setting up things. You know what I mean? I, I would, I'd watch TV or sitcoms, and I could kind of draw the lines to where the joke was going. And sometimes I could, like, tell the joke before they told the joke. I'd be like, oh, this is about to happen. This person's about to walk through the door because I kind of understood that it wasn't happenstance. You know what I mean? Yeah, you recognized but, it as you recognized it as as work, as something that someone had to put together. Yes, yeah. but in the same vein, I didn't recognize it as uh, something that I could do. That's a really key moment when anyone enters uh, a realm that they think is sort of fantastical, when they realize that it's just human beings making the stuff and doing the stuff. Do you remember? I have kind of a sense memory of where that came from for me, but do you have a sense memory of that? Like, you're like, oh, 
it's just a job. These are just people. <laughs> I'm a person. Um, like anyone can do this, really, if they really want. If they if they want to try, they can they can maybe get there. I think uh, you know that's part of a testament to my mother. I believe that very young, I could do whatever I wanted to do because my mother used to tell me you could do whatever you want to do. Hmm. And so I never really saw people on TV as impossible things to reach. I mean, also, you know, very young, my cousin would, was dating Bobby Brown. And so he was kind of like the first celebrity that I met that everybody around me would like, like, oh my God. And I was like, well, he's just like a dude, you know? He's just a guy, you know what I'm saying? So Was he okay? You know, Bobby Brown these days. Uh... Yeah, he was fine, you know? And okay. even these days, he's still a dad. He's still a good father. Yeah. He's the father of two of my cousins. And, uh, oh, you know, everyone oh, goes... He, oh, he is. I didn't realize that. Oh, you're you're, yeah. you're you're related to him in some way. Everybody goes through struggles, but, you know, he's yeah. a good man. And he has a good heart. Okay. But, yeah, so I don't think... Uh, I never really felt there were things that weren't attainable. Ever? If you were willing to work for them. Oh, I see. Okay. No, I didn't... I never felt there were things that weren't attainable. I just... I, there was a place in my life where I didn't know... I couldn't find myself. I didn't know what was attainable for me, but I never felt that things were out of reach if you were willing to work and push past things and and do what was necessary to get them. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, I never felt like, oh, I could never be Oprah. I never saw celebrity or, or success in this way where you couldn't get it. So do you have a sense of when you found your voice? Like, did you go to, uh, did you go finish high school? Did you go beyond high school? Um, yeah, I went to college for a little while, mm-hmm. and I dropped out because it wasn't really like my thing. Okay. I wasn't really in school ever. I wasn't ever really a great student. I was always smart, but I wasn't a good student. I didn't like to do homework. I didn't like to study. Uh, I was just I didn't understand. I didn't. I never liked rules, hmm. and especially rules that I felt were like arbitrary or didn't really make sense to me. So you know, all that doesn't make for a good student. So, <laughs> right. I wasn't a good student, but I was always a smart kid, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. So college wasn't really for me because I thought college was going to be, or at least the college I went to. I mean, maybe if I had went to one of these more like private Oberlin free thinking institutions, I probably would have had a better time. But college just felt to me like, you know, the, the, uh, the 13th grade, you know, it just felt like more high school. What? And I was like, "Well, this is fucking trash." So, <laughs> what did what did you study at college? As long as you were there, what were you studying? Uh, communications. I, I don't know. I just picked a thing. What does that What does that mean in America? I I know. Is that journalism necessarily? Is that broadcasting? Is that all of that? That's stuff? like broadcasting and like yeah. radio and like shit like that and TV. And TV. Okay, so it's it's broadcasting generally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So did you have? You picked that because you picked a thing, it sounds like, because you, you felt like you had to pick a thing. But Yeah, and it seemed like the most interesting thing of the things. You know, I didn't want to fucking learn English, and I didn't give a shit about math. And it was like, well, this is somewhat creative, I guess, you know? Yeah. But it felt too regimented. Yeah, and I just... I just... It, my head wasn't in it. I just didn't... I don't. I don't know. I don't think I'm a person who's meant to learn things traditionally. Okay. Okay. That's good. To, at least you know yourself. I mean, that's good to know. I mean, rather than blowing all that money on college, uh, figuring that out. So, what did you do after? Uh, I was in Atlanta at the time. I just kind of bounced around Atlanta doing like bullshit jobs and, you know, working for a job marketing company. I worked for Starbucks at one point. Just different shit. I worked for the state, and then. I'm hooked up with some dudes who were like into music and I started doing shit in the music scene and like co-managing an artist and like, you know, we would do like promotion shit and throw parties and we eventually put all our resources together and opened a studio in like uh, kind of downtown Atlanta and, um, oh, okay. you know, just like trying to be doing something somewhat creative and I guess I was still finding myself figuring it out. Did you play music per se? Like, when when did you get interested? No, no. Okay, you just. I've always been into music, but I think it was more so I was into creative processes, and I got to be involved in a creative process, and that was exciting to me. And what kind of music was it per se? 
Rap, hip hop. Rap and hip hop. Okay. Do you remember? Like, I, I just curious if you have a. I have like some rap and hip hop people that are like in my foundation, in my core. Do you have that? Do you have people that are like, they they are the ones who turned you onto it, and they're always with you, kind of thing. Like artists or like people. Oh, I'm sure both. I, I, I that's an interesting distinction. It's, uh, I mean, I grew up on it. You know, I'm black, <laughs> so. <laughs> sure. It was very much a part of my household. My brothers listened to it. I mean, I was born in '82, so. You know, by the time I was five, six, I was very aware of, of music and hip hop, mm-hmm. especially. I had my cousin and my uncle were trying to have like a rap group, and like I would rap with them sometimes. And I just, like, I can't remember a time hip hop ha- wasn't around me. So that's kind of a hard question to answer. Okay. No, I just wonder if, if uh, I mean, now are there contemporary artists, or I mean, what are you listening to, I suppose, is the shorthand? Uh, I mean, like, if, if we're talking influences, Jay-Z, for sure, uh, was instrumental in my, my like, teen years and, like, kind of growing up, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, he was a big, big artist for me that I was, like, really into um, and still am really into. Kanye, uh, if I just, like, those are artists that I, like, I'm into and, like, I really give a shit about what they're saying. Did you see? Yeah. I just listen to stuff, you know. I just listen to whatever's out, whatever's new. I, was I like just, Drake a lot. I was just talking to someone an episode or two back now, a few episodes ago, about the Watch the Throne tour because I saw two of the shows. In mm-hmm. Tr- I saw the two shows in Toronto. Did you see that tour? Mm-mm. I don't really go to concerts. I don't like concerts. Why don't you like concerts? They're impersonal. They're impersonal. The fact that the person is actually in person, you think it's impersonal. I. Are you saying yeah. in personal? Because that's what I thought you said. Maybe no. I. <laughs> you don't. You don't. You think they're. How are they in? Oh, huh. Because there's thousands of people. Yeah. <laughs> You're sharing. It's just, it's just big and crazy, and it doesn't feel. I just never like them. Like if I go see an artist, I'll go to like something like really small. You know. I see. I like. I love Jay Z, but I like. I was always like, I don't want to see Jay Z in some big ass fucking crazy venue because i really fuck with jay-z and then when i saw like jay-z unplugged i was like oh that's how i would have liked to see jay-z okay let me that would have been cool i I understand i saw jay-z on like the hard knock life tour and then i saw him again i think on the blueprint three tour like i've seen him a, a few times but and they were great shows but i have to say the watch the you say impersonal the watch the throne show kind of reminded me of like seeing Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band because that's a thing where 10, 20,000 people seem like they're all in the same moment and Watch the Throne mm-hmm. is the closest hip-hop show I've ever been to that where everyone was losing their shit. Strangers are kind of high-fiving each other when they played songs. I, I Hugging, like just embracing people. You're just like the feeling of warmth and family at those Watch the Throne shows was ridiculous. So... I just want to point that. I, I think if that happens, because did you hear there might be a Watch the Throne? Kanye just says a bunch of stuff. He thinks there's going to be yeah. a second Watch the Throne, which I, I find very hard to believe. <laughs> well, probably. I believe it. I don't think Jay and Kanye will ever have a, a beef they can't fix. Really? Huh. But um, I don't know. Like, I've been to a few festivals this summer because of uh, just comedy. So, like, over the last couple of years, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's cool. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I like the mingling. Like, I like hanging out with the people, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And I mean, like, if it's an artist I don't really care about, like, I saw a little Wayne at a bumper shoot and I was fine. Like, I had fun, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I think if it's, like, somebody I'm really into, unless I could be, like, front row, I don't think I'd be that into it. Yeah, I'm with you there. I am uh, I really like the good seats. I That's true. I, if I have a bad seat, it ruins. Then it, yeah. Yeah, it's true. On the one of the... Jesus tour. I saw the Jesus tour a couple times, and then the one of them, yeah, one of them I was right at the stage, and the other one I was way in the bleachers. And you're right, that does make okay. You know what? I see your point. I can see why you wouldn't want to. You know, the arena is it is a little alienating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like you know I held out and I didn't see Jay Z, and then this last season of SNL, he was the first musical guest. That's right. And I got to see Jay Z in like a little ass studio. <laughs> And I got to like, and I got to like watch Jay Z like rehearse, and it was just like me and cameramen and like production people, and it was like, oh, this is how I've always wanted to see Jay Z. This is cool. Did you talk to him? Uh, yeah, I talked to him like after the show at the after party. 
Yeah. And how was that? It was cool. He's cool. I met him once. My wife and I met him once at a radio station in uh, Toronto, and he was super sweet and super nice. And he could tell I, I was the only one super into Empire State of Mind in the sound booth when he was like waiting for the interview to start. <laughs> I remember that. He looked at me and he gave me a nod, you know, and uh, kind of. Mm. I kind of wish I rapped it at him. I knew, I know all of Empire State. <laughs> I don't know why. I just know all of it. It's ridiculous. Anyway, we made some jumps there. You mentioned SNL. You mentioned uh, being in Atlanta. How do you go from managing artists in Atlanta to being a, a writer on SNL? Can we can we go through that trajectory a little bit? Uh, just like I don't know, just following comedy wherever it took me. You know, at some point, I I decided to be a, a stand up and kind of just threw all my energy into that pot and uh, just kept walking through doors when they were open. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the impetus was to actually try stand up? Because for some people, that's that's a huge impasse. Get, getting from I kind of want to do this to I'm going to do it. Well, I tried it when I was like maybe twenty and still uh, nineteen, twenty, and still in Boston. And then uh, I was kind of like my cousin had a boyfriend. Well, her, her husband at the time, uh, who was a stand up in the city. And I was always kind of attracted to comedy and I always kind of wanted to try it. So I was like, hey, can I like tag along with you to shows? And, you know, he was like, for sure. So I would kind of follow him around, you know, and um, I tried to get on stage like once or twice and it was pretty shitty. And I was like, oh, this doesn't feel how I think it's supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but I was still kind of following him around and stuff. And I was still like down to pursue it. And then I got sick. I got, um, I was really sick and I was hospitalized like off and on for like nine months. And so like in that time, I just couldn't do it because I was sick. And then once I got better, I, uh, I just wanted to get the fuck out of Boston. It was so much shit with my family and it was just a lot. So I left and I went to Atlanta. And then when I went to Atlanta, I was like partying hard and doing a lot of shit like that at first. And then just got swept up into all these different things and comedy kind of just went to the wayside, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, it wasn't a thought, you know, I was doing all this stuff, but as the music thing, which I think was instrumental and I needed to go through it because it was the first thing that I ever like really put all my fucking effort in like that and just believed in it and was like, I don't give a shit what anyone's saying to me. And I think I needed to grow a tough skin in that way to do something like that you know Hmm. but it didn't take off you know at some point we all who were you know kind of collectively in this music group together um as far as you know the guy was co-managing with the artist and there were a couple other people who had been falling off over the years it got to a point where it was kind of like this is just a bad investment like we're just throwing money and we're not seeing any true progress and i kind of had to walk away from it so at that point, I was just back at it. I was working at a Starbucks, and I was just kind of like fucking feeling like a loser, you know, and not really knowing what I was supposed to be doing in life, but knowing that the life I was living wasn't fitting me. And mm-hmm. it was like, you know, you have your parents. Well, not your parents, but, you know, I had like my aunts and my uncles and uh, all these people in my family just kind of like, you need to come to Boston and you need to get a hospital job or you need to, you know, go work for the tea or you need to take a emt test and you could be an mt just whatever was gonna make me money you know what i'm saying so that i could i could sustain myself and have somewhat of a what they considered a decent life but none of that stuff ever attracted me and i never really cared about money per se Hmm. i care about money in the sense that it's access and it allows you things and it affords you experiences and i believe experiences are what makes a quality life but I don't really care about money. Like money doesn't motivate me to do shit. Sure. So, you know, I just really was at this weird point. And a couple of my friends in Atlanta who I knew through music stuff were like getting into comedy. And it was like kind of a jealousy there that I was was like, whoa, what is this feeling, you know? And then uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's my girlfriend now, but uh, we've been off and on, but my girlfriend at the time, I was sitting on her couch one night and she was just like, what do you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, like, what do you want to do with your life? 
And I was like, you really want to know? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I want to be a comedian. And she was like, what? Because <laughs> it was so out of nowhere. Because huh. I never showed any interest like that in anything like that. I'm like a naturally funny person, sure. But I never was like going to comedy shows every week or anything, you know? I see, yeah. And and then she was like, well, why don't you do it? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just scared, you know? Hmm. And uh, then that kind of like re-sparked it in my brain. You know what I mean? And then I feel like maybe it was about four months or five months later on my birthday. And I might be saying it might have been less than that. But it was around my birthday. She had took me to like do all this little cool like adventurous stuff. Like we went ice skating. It was like all these little surprises. And then the last thing she brought me to this like improv like place in Atlanta. Huh. And she was like, yeah, I paid for you to like do a class with these people and da da da. And I like completely freaked out on her. And I was like, absolutely not. And like, nope, not doing it. Hell no. But that was just the fear too at that point. So then maybe about a year later, because my birthday was in January. So a year from there, I was 28 then. I did a like open mic on like New Year's in Atlanta at the Star Bar. And uh, I did a set and it was okay, you know? Yeah. But it was like, oh, okay. You know what I mean? And then I got off stage and I heard this dude and he was like, yeah, all these New Year people just trying to get their New Year's resolutions out the way are just getting in the way, you know? Because uh, oh, about I you? need to go Yeah, like open mic. Well, just in general. Yeah. yeah just yeah. in general, you know? And he was like, because I need to get up or whatever. And I don't know if he was saying open micers because I think he was an open micer. I think he was more saying just like people who are just trying to like do something brave for their New Year's resolution. Right. And I don't know why, but it bothered me. And I was like, okay. And I started to just like, I stepped back from it. So I did it that January and then I didn't do it again. But I was like thinking about it. And then I got sick again. I have lupus. So I got sick again hmm. while I was in Atlanta. And I was like, you know, I need to go home. It had been a long time since I had talked to my family. It had been a long time since we connected. Atlanta, I was kind of just burnt out i had kind of come full circle i was sleeping on my friend's fucking couch and i was just like this is crazy hmm. you need to go home and just like get your feet back under you type of deal went back to boston and i think i was maybe three months into it and i was at my cousin's house and i was doing this bit that i kind of do now it's on my album but I was just talking. We were just all drinking and talking, and I was talking about being cummed on. <laughs> right. And I was, and I was, uh, and I was like killing. I was fucking killing, and I was just, and it felt good. And I kind of been doing it for a while like that. Like I would go to bars and just talk to strangers, and like I'd be running bits, really things that I had been thinking about for a while and thought were funny to me, and I'd like see if they thought it was funny. So I think I was like trying to just feel it out in this weird kind of way because i i guess i wanted to know how it's supposed to feel because yeah. when i had first did it in boston i i knew it didn't feel right so after i killed like that i really thought about it and i was like i'm gonna fucking do this stand-up thing but i was like i have to know when i when i'm on stage it needs to feel like this every time and when it doesn't feel like this i need to figure out why it's not feeling like this and like get it to feel like this because this is how it should feel it should feel this reflowing it should feel this conversational yeah and it should feel this natural you know because that's when i'm my funniest i'm not very good at uh structured shit in general school all things so i called my homie who i was co-managing artists with in atlanta but we were still friends even though that thing fell apart we were still very very close right and i called him and i was like yo bro i need you to have my back i'm about to just do this comedy shit and he was like for real and i was like yeah i'm just about to just go all in and he was like all right if you want to do it just you know do it so then after that i called my cousin's husband and i was like yo can you tell me like open mics in the city and he was like i actually have one this sunday if you want to come down i yeah. went to it i got booed uh then there was this kid there he was another comic he was there for the mic his name was justin Pedro. And after I got booed, I sat down next to him. And he was like, if you want to know the other mics in the city, uh, you know, give me your number and I'll text them to you. And I was like, right. And he was like, yeah. And he texted me the mics Monday through Sunday. And then I went back that Monday to the other mics. And I just kept going to mics huh. and, you know, put my head down, 
And I used to just, I just compartmentalize it. I was like, just put your head down and do this for six months. Give it everything you got. So I would do like three, three, four mics a night, you know, work during the day and then go to mics at night. And I was like, if you see progress, then put your head down for another six months. And that's kind of how I attacked it. And here we are. It's uh, that's thank you for sharing that. I I did not know that, and uh, I I've, I want to jump uh, through a couple of things you just uh, mentioned. First of all, this girlfriend that you're on and off again, is this the same person on the record that you had the divorce with, or no? No, not at all. No. Okay, just making sure. And and so because <laughs> that's a vivid story you tell on this uh, on this record. Um, the other thing I want to ask you about is the assertiveness. Uh, you, you mentioned that you attacked these sets and your material. I remember watching, I think it was Vice did a little mini doc on you, right? Was it Vice who mm-hmm. followed you around? And you're telling mm-hmm. jokes and people are gasping, um, you know, in some cases, like not all the time, but people are surprised at what you're saying. They maybe don't agree with what you're saying. You really put yourself out there. You're very assertive. You're very opinionated. Um, and you mentioned being booed. I'm just curious. Does like the crowd matter? Do you care if people are on side with you when you go out there? Because you you've said it a few times. I think you're a truth teller, and that's not always easy for people. Do you care about that affirmation from the crowd? I mean, when I first started, I think I did. I think every comic starts caring. You know, I think the evolution is when you stop. You know what I mean? I think that's when you get to the art of it. So, I mean, I just think there's, you know, I think there's a difference between, a, you know, a stand-up comedian and a clown. A clown is there to appease you. Uh, a stand-up comedian is there to challenge you, huh. to make you think while making you laugh. And so, at some point, it can't be about them. You need to respect them because, respect them because you should be respecting the entire process. But you don't have to, they don't have to always be on your side. Well, you mentioned going. And it would be crazy to think they would be. This is we're all different, and we have different opinions. So, to think you're going to agree with everything I'm going to say through an hour conversation, because that's what it is. Yeah, I think is a little nutty, you know. But you mentioned, which is very clever. I don't know that I've heard of people doing this, but maybe other comedians do. You mentioned going up to strangers and just testing out ideas and seeing if they were funny. Does that litmus test? Or, or taking something new to a crowd and seeing how they react. I mean, obviously, a reaction when there's nothing, <laughs> when there's just nothing, you know you've got to retool it. You know you've got to fix something maybe. But mm-hmm. when you get that kind of resistance to an idea or, oh, that's funny. You know, when someone says something's funny, they don't really think it's funny, I think, sometimes. You know what I mean? They, if they laugh, mm-hmm. they laugh. Anyway, I just wonder if all of that sort of research you're doing, if you will, by taking something out from your house and whether it's a one person in a bar you're just telling it to, or it's a crowd, like, do you go back from that to fix things? Do you go back to, to, to try to refine things? Yeah. I think you're always like crafting what you're doing. Right. And I'm always trying to craft this conversation that, that I'm, I'm trying to have because there, there's a purpose to it. There's, there's things I want you to take from it. There's things I want you to feel. And so if, if that part of it isn't working for sure, I'm going to, change things and craft things and and try to to get it there you know what i mean while also you know wanting it to be funny because i i enjoy making people laugh i enjoy making people think but i also enjoy making people laugh so yeah in that sense yes yeah are are, are people who know you or family who have heard this record or seen you live surprised at the person they're hearing and seeing no they're like that's just me because, you know, we, you and I are having a very calm conversation right now, and I didn't expect you to be, you know, Sam from the record, but totally different kind of personality type. So I wonder if that's, I mean, that's <laughs> that's just the same as any performer, I suppose, but it's just very fascinating to me. You're, you know what I mean? I, again, I, 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 this is a clumsy way of differentiating you now as we're speaking between the person on the record, but I think people who aren't familiar with you and are listening to this are going to be quite surprised if we get to a bit by the end of this interview or if they go and search you out because it's pretty pretty uh, uncompromising stuff that you've got <laughs> and you deliver it with real, you know, it's zeal, I suppose, is the word. So it's I'm just wondering about that energy and where it comes from. I mean, I, I don't talk about anything on stage that I don't, I, I haven't thought about. Uh, so in that sense, I think it, the personality is very much the same. I'm just a thoughtful person. Yeah. 
so the I guess the, the zeal behind the things that I say is just that um, I believe the things that I'm saying matter. What about the sort of, for lack of a better term, outlandishness or whatever you want to call it? Like, you know, you're doing a bit about eating ass. That's not something you would probably bring up in regular conversation, I don't think. Maybe would you? Maybe you would among friends. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure I would. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, I mean, we all talk differently to our friends. What about that? Would you take that bit to a stranger in a bar? Like, hey, check this for out. For sure. Yeah? You <laughs> for sure. I mean, but, I, but when I was doing that, that was like before I was sure. getting on stage. Sure. And that was just like, but yeah, I would talk. I mean, I, I, I am a firm believer that there's not conversation that's off limits. Right. And if I'm, if I'm speaking, I mean, that's the, that's the savvy of it, right? Mm -hmm. The savvy of it is, can you sit around a bunch of people and get them all to be like, cool, we'll talk about eating ass. Like I told you, <laughs> I was doing a bit about getting come down at my cousin's house. Like, so I, I, I don't. <laughs> right. Okay. Those not things I won't discuss, you know, it's just like, you have to have finesse to it. It's just like any, any courtship. No, you don't walk up and be like, "Hey, let me tell you about eating ass." But <laughs> you can, you can get people to a place where they're like, "I'm going to listen to this story about eating ass." You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. That's a big part of it. That's the art of it as well. That's that's fair. You've done. Uh, I think uh, I listened to lots of uh, newer stand-up records, and I can see uh, people trying to mess with the form a little bit, like a live record, and. I think you've done something interesting with your with Donna's daughter because there are kind of uh, post production elements, and I'm wondering if you can talk about some of them. Um, you know, like interstitial interludes. All of a sudden, there's a beat for some reason, <laughs> and I'm and over you just doing comedy sometimes. And there's sort of like informal field recording interview snippets. Like, what was the methodology behind that? Uh, well, I just recorded a bunch of people without their knowledge and then got releases afterwards for the ones that I felt I wanted to use. Oh. And uh, I had got with Coach T, who did all the production, and told T the idea that what I wanted to do, he was digging it. I just wanted to make an album that felt like a debut album. I wanted it to feel more like a hip-hop album. I wanted it to be something you could listen to from the beginning to the end. I didn't want to just put material on a record. I wanted to introduce people to who I was right. in this more rounded kind of way. And so, you know, I always thought like how Biggie had skits on Ready to Die or even Kendrick's uh, Good Kid, Mad City and how the skits were like bridges to other parts of the album. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it'd be cool if I recorded all these like actual conversations and then took pieces of them that because comedy is well my comedy is especially derived from my actual life and things i talk about with people on a daily so it was just trying to like you know use those conversations to like take you on these little journeys so you got a little bit more of me and then bring you back into the the bit so that you see where it kind of derives from hmm. when you go out into the world are you surprised at all by the perception that maybe fans or uh people who've heard or seen you on heard your work or seen you on tv uh like when they approach you or ask you questions like are you, are you surprised by the way people perceive you at all because it sounds to me like you're trying to uh, you know present yourself in as genuine a way as possible but is anything about the external reception to your work kind of made you think huh i didn't i don't see myself that way i never thought of myself that way Nothing I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, it's been cool. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been chill. Okay. I mean, people just people generally are just like, oh, I like what you do, <laughs> and <you> kind of <laughs> keep it moving. You know what I mean? So, I think sometimes people think I'm making more of a statement than I am, uh, oh, or trying to right. trying to trying to be intentionally something when I'm not. And that's sometimes weird. Intentionally sexual, intentionally... Uh, intentionally political, political or intentionally yeah. stirring the pot in certain ways. Where it's like, no, nah, this is just stuff I actually think. Yeah. Like, the stuff I say about white men is just stuff I think. It's not me trying to take a different view than the view that you would think I would take. You know, it's just, no, I, I've watched the news. I've processed this. These are my actual thoughts about it. Has anything changed since your record come, came out? Like in terms of your your thought process about 
the president of the United States or anything else? Uh, not on a, not on a large scale. No, you know, in the sense of like, is he doing worse things now than he was when that record was made? For sure. Yeah. But the bigger picture of what I'm, I'm painting. No, my mind hasn't really changed. You say he is, he is America. He's on the come up. He's just a guy on the come up in America the way anyone else is really. On some right. level, some level. You stand by that. Yeah. Yeah. In a big picture sense, yes. Right. In a micro sense, no. But in the, in the sense that a guy hustling his way to a presidency is literally how we make this whole country. It's, this is a country of, of hustlers and people who break the rules and con men who became businessmen. You know what I mean? So yeah. this is that's in our core. Right. Right. Okay. No, yeah. So that's that's what I'm saying. I mean, and and you know, I say things in a way that it's layered and it's like if you could take it for its surface and just be like, "Well, that's a dumb thing to say or that's idiotic or that isn't true." Or you could unpack it and and really choose to think and then maybe you'll get something else out of it. Yeah, I think you unpack it in a way that makes it more astute than simply a, a blunt sort of, you know, shocking statement, I suppose. I, I, I do encourage people to listen to Donna's Daughter. Um, I do want to ask you, well, I, I alluded to that Vice documentary, and I, which was made, I guess, last year, maybe, or this year. I don't know mm-hmm. when, when it came out, but I think at the time you expressed, uh, maybe not frustration, but you were just honestly like it was hard for you to get stuff on SNL to get your writing on, you know, the stuff you came up with on Saturday Night Live. Has that changed? And I mean, within that also, as you and I are speaking, a couple of announcements came out today about uh, some hires. I believe, uh, you know, diversity has been an issue at that show or at least a perceived issue at that show. Do you have thoughts on on those two things, I suppose? Uh, You know, are you feeling more comfortable there in terms of getting your stuff on? And also, does it feel like a more progressive place than maybe it was? Well, I've only been there a year, a year, so I don't know really what it was, you know. I, and um, to speak to that, because this is a thing that kind of bothers me. Me saying I'm not getting things on that wasn't because the show has a diversity issue. Okay. It was painted that way, but that's not the point that I was making at all. The point that I was making is just I don't know the process at all. Like, I'm new. Yeah. So it's frustrating. Right. I've never written a fucking sketch until I walked into that fucking building. So it took me about a good half a year to learn how to do it. So do I feel more comfortable now? Of course, because now I know how to do it. I see. I figured out how to write my voice and sketch to some degree. And I still think there's more I need to learn. But it was that was the, the tough process. The process was like, I wasn't getting things on, but I knew I shouldn't be. It wasn't like I was writing the craziest things and they were, you know what I mean? It was like, I'm still learning this thing. And by the end of the season, yeah, I started to get stuff on. It's like, did I write some good sketches that I felt didn't get on? For sure. But so does everybody else at the show. Yeah. That's just the nature of the beast. You know what I mean? Okay. That's, I appreciate the clarification. Is there, because, you know, you're a behind the scenes person and, you know, the, at the end of the show, the scroll, it scrolls all the writers' names. We don't know who did what. Do you have a personal highlight? Something that we would maybe, I, I follow the show regularly. I, I monitor SNL for my job. One of my jobs is to review every episode. So I might be, I probably am familiar with something, but do you have a highlight from maybe the end of last season or just something that you, you were pretty excited about? Uh, I mean, I would like to share, like everybody contributes. So it's really hard to take credit for things of like course, that because sure. it's like everybody at the table adds to something being super dope. Uh, but I guess the sketch that I was proud of because, you know, I was one of the initial writers on was uh, Black Jeopardy. Oh, nice. This was with, uh, who was the guest host that week? Uh, Chadwick. Chadwick, that's right. That was a brilliant, brilliant, the, oh man, and the the raisins and the coleslaw or whatever, was that, was that, that was that. Potato was salad. Is it potato? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, did I screw it up? <laughs> it was a few months ago, yes, the potato, that was great. Yeah, that was a brilliant one. So that, you initialized that idea. Although, I mean, I wrote initially with other people. I didn't initialize the idea. Black Jeopardy's been on SNL for how many seasons now? Yeah, I think it wasn't, so. <laughs> wasn't Tom, Hank, Tom Hanks did a very infamous yeah. one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And Drake has done it. So it's been around. Um, right. But me, uh, Brian Tucker, and Michael Che worked on that one particularly, yes. Oh, nice. Well, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you're you're happy. It's Are you happy? Are you, are you good? Yeah, 
I'm good. <laughs> so Donna's daughter's out uh, already. What's next for you in terms of your own stand-up and, and maybe other projects? Do you have anything on the go? Uh, well, my Netflix special came out this summer, the Netflix team comedy lineup. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. Then I'm just, you know, working on new material, trying to put together new shit and see where that stuff goes. Okay. I, I mean, I assume you're very busy at SNL, too. Well, yeah. That starts. When does that? <laughs> when does the new season start? Uh, the first show is next Saturday. Oh, it's next Saturday. Oh God, I didn't know that. Okay, it's coming up really soon. I gotta pay. I just told you I monitor the show, and I didn't even know that. That's dumb. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, okay, so it's it's uh, yeah. So you've got that to deal with too. All right. Well, I uh, oh, where can people go to learn more about you, Sam? I meant to ask you that too. In terms of uh, uh I have a website. Um... <laughs> <laughs> People are very sheepish about telling me about their websites these days. I feel that they're not updated or something. I don't know. You just said it in that same tone. <laughs> I don't know because I don't even know what it is because I don't go to websites. <laughs> you're on, so you're... I'm like, as I'm telling you, I have one. I'm like typing. What is oh, my address? Yeah. Yeah, because I don't even remember it. Right. Okay. But you're on, tw- you're on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. And, yeah, you're... and I'm on Instagram. And um, you can find me on Instagram. It's just like a Sam J comic. Yeah, that's pretty much how you can find me anywhere. And Donna's and daughter. Somewhere <laughs> there's a website. Somewhere there's a website. And Donna's daughter is on streaming services. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's on Title. It's on Spotify. It's on iTunes. It's on like Google Play. It's on like all the things that you get music on. Okay, cool. Now, is is there one bit? from the record that I can play for people so that they can get a sense of what we've been talking about or you I guess to get a sense of you and maybe maybe what we've been talking about I, I'll let you choose that you don't want to choose this has been a thing now no one wants to choose why can't <laughs> I have to pick the thing okay let me think here what could I I want to pick um, well I did mention Eaton Ass is that played out is that should we go to something else I'm trying to think here gays shouldn't marry that's an interesting one I find that one a fascinating one do you want to what about that one sure is there anything you want to tell us about gays shouldn't marry before we hear it um no (laughs) okay it's right in the title what your thoughts so uh, let's let's just let's just go with it this is a gay shouldn't marry by sam jay from her record uh donna's daughter sam this was a a great pleasure thank you so much for being on the show yeah i appreciate it very much thank you for having me but yeah, I'm in, I'm in it. I'm in this shit, man. It's a divorce and it's stupid. This is why gay people shouldn't be getting fucking married, you know? On dogs, it's, it's, it's heteronormative shit that ain't built for us. You feel me? Like marriage is for straight people. It makes sense for y'all. It don't make sense for gay niggas because it's just there's so many different dynamics at play. But we tried to do y'all shit. We shouldn't have fought for no fucking marriage shit, man. That was stupid. We should have fought for a tax break. That was the better fight. It was just a better conversation. It was really going to give us what we wanted. But we got caught up and like, we need to be married too. And we don't because we don't, we don't even function the same. And we knew how to be married before all these laws and shit. We were still getting married. That's the funny thing about any oppressive group. They think they like stop the the group from doing shit, but you don't. Like when like you know when niggas were slaves, that felt like a weird double thing. I shouldn't say like niggas and slaves, but I like saying I'm all right. When niggas were slaves, you know they were like y'all can't marry, and then niggas would just jump the broom, and then motherfuckers don't figure out how to beat. You know you can't stop that shit. So it's like we were still getting married as gay people, but it made more sense for us. You just met like a chick on an app. You know what I mean? Or you met her at a bar and you're like, hey, bitch, I love you. And then you just threw a barbecue. A solid-ass barbecue. Like one of them barbecues that don't never run out of ribs. Like, nigga, we barbecuing. Till the night's done, you know? And then you're like, I'm gonna die with this bitch. We married. And then when you were done, you just threw another barbecue. That's all heteronormative shit. It makes sense for y'all. Because y'all make babies and shit. You know what I'm saying? I feel like that's the whole point of getting married is the fuck raw, you know? <laughs> Why else do you do it? You're like, I want to consistently fuck raw. <laughs> like a lot. So I got to lock something down to keep fucking it raw. 
Then you marry somebody, and then when you hate them, there's a whole baby because you've been fucking raw. So then you, I can't leave you, bitch. I made this baby with my dick, and then you stay. And gay people, we don't have that. Me and my wife didn't have that. The only thing me and my wife had between each other was a cell phone plan. That's not enough. It's not enough for me to stay when I don't want to be in that motherfucker. That ain't holding me. That's like, bitch, I'll go to Sprint. This is bullshit. Getting the fuck out of here. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Special thanks again to Sam J for being on this, the 430th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and available on all iOS and Android platforms and also on Spotify, YouTube, and Audio Boom as well. If you can't find an episode that you've been looking for on any of those platforms for some reason, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me at Vishkana. Listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time. Around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio, 93.3 FM, if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit Patreon.com slash Creative Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. Thanks to all of you who do this. It's uh, awesome. I hope uh, more people will do it and I hope you'll continue to do it. And That's all I really have to say. Patreon.com slash Creative Control. I'd like to thank uh, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, Granddad's Donuts, and Planet of Sound for uh, their in-kind support of the show. Thanks, too, to uh, my uh, pal Jim Guthrie for letting me use the instrumental version of his song, The Rest Is Yet to Come, uh, to end the show each and every week. And uh, you can learn more about him at jimguthrie.org. And uh, last but not least, thank you. Thank you for listening to the show all the way through to up to this point. You've you've listened to almost the whole show now. That's That's great. Thank you for doing that. And and reviewing it positively and rating it positively and, and, and downloading episodes and, and telling your friends about the show and subscribing to the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast, that would be great. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm at right now. How, how are you? Pretty good? I hope I hope you're okay. I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. Cast recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're gonna love. My name's Sebastian Major, host of the podcast Our Fake History. Have you ever wondered if King Arthur was a real person, or if the city of Atlantis really existed? Or maybe you've heard that old story that Queen Elizabeth I was actually a man in drag. On Our Fake History, we explore these stories and try to determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. Subscribe to Our Fake History anywhere you get your podcasts. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.